<laughs> okay, so you're originally from Montana. First of all, let me let me tell the people how I know you. So we are both grad students at UCLA in the ethnomusicology department. Uh, that's how I first met Gabriel Lavin. Um, and we just hit it off since, okay, I met you the first day we walked in for a test. Do you remember that test? That crazy test they had? Yeah, us like it was the, the uh, it was the oral skills or, or like theory te- the music theory test, right? Music theory. It was uh, a yeah. listening transcription. It was theory analysis, all these different kind of things. I walked in. It was you, Will, uh, Tyler, and Chris. That's our mm-hmm. our little cohort. And for whatever reason, I just remember Gabe was just making a joke out of the entire situation. You know what I mean? And I was like, okay, this is a cool guy. This is somebody that I can get along with. Making a joke. <laughs> We walk in and it's like super quiet. Everybody's very, very serious. I'm ready to, you know, take this test. And this is UCLA and blah, 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 blah. And Gabe is in there just hanging out, doing what Gabe does, which is beautiful, which is beautiful. And that's exactly how we we met. And then we got along ever since. And we all got in. And so for me, it's been really cool getting to know you because what you study is... Well, first of all, how about you explain it? Because I don't want to, I don't want to sit here and talk about what you study. So introduce yourself, I guess, and your research and all this different kind of stuff. I, I think I remember that was like a, that was like the music theory test or something. I just remember being like, "Man, I have my my." It's been so long since I studied, since I studied any theory, so I was just like, "This whatever I do is just out the out the window, man." I wasn't getting that test wasn't getting me anywhere. It wasn't scoring many me any points so i remember just being kind of like <laughs> whatever dude <laughs> um but yeah but yeah I, so i guess before i went be, so like the year before we met before ucla started we started at ucla uh, i was in oman i i got a i actually got a fulbright to go study in oman uh, to go study music there they have a they have like i play the oud so i i'm originally play guitar it's a common story you know guitarists and then you know we start looking for other guitar like instruments and so i found the oud uh which is you know you could probably show a picture of it or but a lot of a lot of the listeners will probably know what it is it's basically like a you play it like it's six strings like a guitar but it's usually like 12 or 11 strings um but i actually got into playing that because i studied arabic in undergrad Um, so i I actually yeah. didn't know that. I didn't know that at all. I thought you studied anthro in undergrad. I yeah, well I did, but I did like I tried to do like a ling- linguistic specialization because I had started I was studying music. I was in like a music tech program at my school. So I went to my school in my hometown, uh, Montana State University, MSU. Uh, and they had like this music tech program. Uh, which was pretty cool. Um I, I think if I stayed with it I could have learned a lot, but I kind of was like I wanted to use the undergrad experience to kind of like explore things and and I wanted to do a study abroad. So I went to Morocco. It's a long story, but I had a cousin who studied a bunch in the Middle East. He studied like political science and stuff. And he always came back with such interesting perspective and you know, insights into what was going on in that part of the world that nobody really ever hears about here. So that kind of like tuned me into wanting to study abroad over that region. And what years were this? When you actually This was went back in two thousand nine. So this was like this was over 10 years ago now. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And what was it like? What, so you were, you were out there for a year? Yeah, like, yeah, two semesters. So just about a little over eight months, uh, like one school year. And yeah, it was great. I mean, just the music was like, I mean, the music there was just amazing. I mean, there's so much going on. I mean, every, everywhere, every place in the world is a crossroads. But especially there, you know, you have like a lot of West African influence, a lot of influence from the Middle East, a lot of influence from Spain. You know, so it's like you hear like West African music, flamenco music, Arabic music from like Egypt and places further east like that. And then a lot of their own like local music, so jazz. I mean, it was just like, I kind of blew my, it kind of blew my mind. I was like, whoa. Uh, so, In Morocco. In Morocco, yeah, you're saying? Yeah, wow. yeah. So when I got back from there, you know, after doing a study abroad, because that the program, it was direct exchange. So it was just, you pay your normal tuition for the university here. And then they just send you, you can just go to another place. Cause then that university will send a student to our university. So it's like a oh, cool. literally like literally in a, you know, an exchange. Yeah. So it was, yeah, it was a, it was a really good, cool opportunity. So it was after that, I, I stopped kind of studying music and I was like, Oh man, this was cool. You know, I would like to keep studying languages and, you know, keep 
traveling, you know, open up doors for that and stuff. So yeah, that's kind of how it all started. So I, I bought an Oud in Morocco and was like, just kind of trying things out. Um, and we got in, we got into UCLA at 2000, eh, like around 2015, right? The fall of 2015. Yeah. So what was happening between 10 and 15 that you were up to? Because by the time you got into UCLA, you were like, you were, you were impressive on the Oud, man. I remember hearing you for the first time. And I was like, wow, this guy must have been playing since he was a kid or something. And then when I learned <laughs> that you started on guitar and I mean, you just have a lot of facility on the instrument, you know? So what was happening in those because you said you didn't when you went to Morocco you weren't playing oud yet. Sorry, right? what did you say? What was that? What, what did you say when I went to Morocco? What? When you went to Morocco you weren't playing oud yet, right? Yeah, no, yeah, I just and I also I should also add I had a I had a, in college back here in the U.S. I had a bunch of friends from like Kuwait and Saudi Arabia because my school was like a big engineering school, so a lot of students they get from those countries they get government scholarships to come here and study, so it was like. So that also kind of perked my interest. So when I got back from Morocco, all those guys were like, "Whoa, Gabe's back from Morocco, and he's got an oud." Let's, you know, let's, because a lot of them they were into music, but they didn't like, they weren't like consistently practicing musicians. I remember there was one guy; he was only here for a semester. He was actually like a really good musician. He played a bunch of different instruments. This guy named I think his name was Abdullah. He was from Kuwait, but yeah, but then he left after like a semester. So I didn't really have anybody like teach me stuff but all these guys we would get together they'd be like all right listen to this listen to this try to play this song and then we can like jam out we can like play everybody could kind of play like percussion a little bit so they're like try to play this song and we'll try to like you know have like a little jam session you know like so i think that that was also encouraging uh so i kind of just like i said i switched my switched from music to to anthropology because i was like studying arabic and they kind of had this linguistic focus I was like, well, I'm into studying languages. Uh, I remember taking one of my intro classes. They were like, <laughs> uh, the more languages you can speak, the your chances of getting Alzheimer's decreases. So I was like, all right. Is that a thing? I, I get, yeah, this is what, I remember this is one thing they taught. One like this intro, like anthro courses I took, they were like, yeah, like the more languages you can learn, it'll decrease your chances of getting Alzheimer's. And Alzheimer's kind of runs in my family a little bit. So I was like, okay. I'm going to start studying languages. I'm going to study linguistics, get this Arabic down, <laughs> you know, speaking, speaking get, get into language. the, get into the music, you know, kind of, so that, that was kind of, you know, in a nutshell. So I started applying for scholarships because my university only had two years of Arabic they offered. So I had to apply for scholarships to study abroad. Um, so I landed one to study in Egypt. It was a government scholarship. So I was in Egypt for a year and then while I was in Egypt, I was trying to, you know, I kept, I just want to keep it going, you know, like, okay, I got the music thing going, I got this language thing going. It's kind of, you know, for all these scholarships to study Arabic, you know, most of the people applying are like political science people, you know, kind of the standard sort of like, I guess what you and I would consider more kind of dry mm -hmm. subjects. So I, I kind of had this like token, you know, I'm a musician, you know. A bit of a chip on your shoulder. Is what I'm hearing, Gabe. No, no, not a chip on my shoulder, but I was just like, you know, I got one scholarship. Let me try for another. So then I applied. It actually took me three years to get that Fulbright to to go to Oman. So, anyways, I'm just giving you kind of like the as quick as I can the rundown between 2010 and 2015 when we first met. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I mean, so, I'm loving it. And you're yeah. completely right. Speaking more than one language could prevent Alzheimer's, as of NPR. So I'll go ahead and uh, yeah. I will. Post the, I'll uh, link this in the show notes. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. So what do I got? English, Spanish, Portuguese. You yeah, need to show me Arabic. You're going to be, you're, you're, your brain's going to be like solid and intact. You could live to your like 120. I'm hoping so, man. I'm me, hoping I'm still so. probably at risk. Maybe by the time I'm 80, you got to, you better check up on me. <laughs> well, look, okay. Another, so, <laughs> so, so, so let me, so I'll tell everybody a quick Gabe Lavin story. Albingus story. <clears throat> Two stories. So, the way I think that you and I got along really well, so so we had the, the whole test situation, and you were just making a joke of it. I was like, all right, that's a cool dude, right? I'm going to get along with that guy. Then we all got in, and we're all hanging out. And I remember I was over at your apartment. I'm, of course, a percussionist. I'm a Latin percussionist. So I play these instruments here. As you can see, these are congas. 
I also play bongo, which are tiny little instruments. They're, they kind of go in between your legs. So I remember we were at your place, and I saw some, what I thought were bongo. But they were out of plastic. Very, you know, for me it was odd because bongo synthetic usually Synthetic heads. Exactly, yeah, synthetic yeah. heads. So I start, I start playing them, and I, and I just hear, you were like in the kitchen or something, I just hear, bingus! Bingus! And I'm like, what the hell is wrong with this cat, man? Like, what's going on? This is, this is a little out for me. And I start playing it. It's just like, Bingus! Oh! <laughs> right? Like, all of this. I was like, man, this, this cat is out, man. He's out. And I'm like, so what is that? Is that like something in Arabic? And you're like, no, man. Bing, bingus. That's what you're playing, the Bingus. I was like, oh, my God. I thought it was, you know, I felt very, I don't know if racist is the word. I don't know. I'm so uncultured, I guess. Whatever. I thought you were making a joke. And I was like, no, Bongo. And you're like, no, no, bingus. I'm like, no, 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 bongo, you fucking idiot. Bongo. And you're like, no, you dumbass. Bingus. Right? And, anyways. So then it finally got in my thick ass head that they're called bingus in the Middle East. And now that's what I call you. You're the bingus. Right? So that's 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 the that's the first one. The second one, which to me truly shows who you are. We were partying in San Diego right here in Gaslamp, a few of us. And it was a crazy night, just ridiculous night. Airbnb was crazy, super illegal. You know, like the person who owned the Airbnb wasn't that person. We walk in, it was like some dude in Russian. He's like, "Do not call the management." You know. Yeah, they were like, "Don't, don't call the people who own this building about the place." Like, it, <laughs> it was, was, it no, was the nothing best... what it was described. They described like two bedrooms. No, 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 three like bedrooms. It was three a three bedroom. Be three be it was like. <laughs> If you want to consider a bathroom, like a living room, like studio apartment area and a closet, if you want to consider that three bedrooms, then that's three bedrooms. Exactly. So we walk in and we're kind of just like, what the hell is this? And you okay, whatever. We're still going to go get some drinks, whatever, blah, blah. We go up down. We were like locked out of the place for a hell of long, you know, super oh, sketch, you know, like all these, whatever. So we finally go out and we're trying to get an Uber and you just hail down like a, a van or something. You know, I guess it was the Uber and we had ordered an uber for one person but it was like four of us or five of us so the guy looks at the group and goes no 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 like super stern super super stern like really angry yeah. and gabe gabe you were just like like this looking peering in the window you know and i'm like what the hell's going on with gabe again and then then you kind of like size him up and then you said blah, 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 something i don't know you said something in like arabic or something and the dude's face just lit up man like he, i don't even know what as if he had known you for years and you started, wah, 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 started playing. We didn't even play for the Uber. You just like befriended him immediately. You know what I mean? To start talking. What, what, what did you say to that guy? I was actually just our, our other friend, Will, uh, Will Machitsky, who's in our program. He, he, I just talked to him the other day and he brought this up and you know, it was late. We were partying, we were drinking, so I couldn't remember, but he, he kind of remembered. He was like, yeah, you guys started talking about politics. So he was from Iraq. Um, so I could kind of tell through his accent that he was probably from an Arab country. So we just started speaking Arabic and started to hit it off. And then he was like, all right, whatever, four people, I don't care. <laughs> and then like, so I remember something later happened. We went, he, we had like the wrong location. I mean, it was just like most Uber drivers, like, right, you know, they're passengers from hell, you know, like yeah, yeah. too many yeah. people, wrong location. But when we got to the wrong location, he was like, all right, whatever. I was like, all right, we got like, seven bucks in cash like it's just it wasn't that far away i was just like we'll just give you seven bucks in cash if you just like take us you know like whatever what it was like 10 more blocks or like whatever and he, and he agreed he was like yeah okay fine i'll just take the cash like whatever you don't don't worry about resetting the the uber so we were paying for uber and cash but we were, we were just talking about it was actually that guy's story was interesting he actually was a, and again will kind of had to remind me of all this he was a I guess he was like an informant for the U.S. Army when the U.S. Army during the Iraq War, Jeez. and I guess so. He's Christian, so he's like a, a Christian minority in Iraq. So I guess that's what kind of encouraged him to kind of be an informant for, or like an interpreter for the U.S. Army or Marines or who you know whatever it was the military, U.S. military. So then out of that, like I guess he got like a green card or citizenship. I can't remember which one it was. Um, so yeah, that was in a nutshell kind of what his deal was. All all in pretty, Arabic. pretty interesting. All in Arabic. So Gabe is completely fluent in Arabic. And listening to you speak Arabic is crazy because like if you close your eyes, you would think that it's somebody from over there. 
you know what I mean? And you're really just like a homie yeah. from Montana. So, <laughs> but it's interesting we bring this up, man, because I, so when you went to the Middle East and you've been, so you've said Morocco, Oman, uh, I'm, I'm sure you've been to other places. I hear it yeah. feels like growing up, at least for me, you know, like we, I lived through, we all lived through 9-11. We lived, I mean, one of my best friends after 9-11 was from Palestine. And I remember his house. Oh, man. They were throwing bricks in his windows, breaking his windows. He couldn't, like, he would go out and people would say shit to his family and to him. Yeah. His his mother wore a hijab and man, she would just get harassed. And it was just such a terrible, yeah. terrible time, you know, to, and, and this was like one of my best friends, man. I love this. He's my brother, you know, and yeah, to see him go through stuff like this was not only heartbreaking, but it was also in fucking infuriating, you know, because it's like he, they yeah. had nothing to do with what happened, you know, and. So what I mean to say is here in the United States, when all that happened, 9-11 and all the fallout and all this, and still, there's still troops over there. I feel like yeah. we have such a warped view of the Middle East and the way we conceptualize the Middle East and, and, you know, that there's a lot of regions over there that, of course, do things that are, like, unacceptable in terms of human rights and all this. I think the way that religion works over there is very different than what we're used to. Yeah. But as an American... What were some of the biggest misconceptions, you know, that, that you realized when you went over there and then you came back in terms of how we Americans understand that part of the world, you know? Oh, man, this is, this is a big subject. But, yeah, I mean, I think just like, you know, I, yeah, I think it, I'm just on a lot of levels, you know, and it depends on who you talk to. But I just think there's so many levels that there's just kind of like cognitive dissonance. Like, what I would say, like, the general thing is just, you know, we're not used to you know, in the US and like, and again, if we're not like your friend who like our ancestry is like from that part of the world or our parents are from that part of the world, um, you know, you just rarely see like human images of people, like people just, it, all you see in the media is like what you said, just like either war, violence, you know, or if it's not that, it's like very specific things, you know, like, you know, women are treated this way or, you know, religion is like this or you know i mean whatever there's like a lot of different things but the, but i think like the general theme is just like you don't just see like everyday people kind of doing normal stuff which is that that's like what most of it is even sometimes in places where there's a lot of conflict it's just people trying to like live their lives and raise their kids and put food on the table you know i mean and in a sense i mean obviously the culture is different the language is different but i mean it's not different than like human beings anywhere else you know like human beings anywhere else wouldn't react any differently to the situations i think people get exposed to there so i think yeah i, I would if, if i would just say in general it's just we lack kind of that our media d tends to not especially like over the last couple decades tends to not just show these kind of normal kind of human humanizing images of people you know I think so. you're completely right, man. Like, actually, when as you were saying all this, I was thinking back, and I was I was remembering that, you know, my dad at the time he was still living at the house. He would always watch CNN, and when all that stuff was going down, it was always that. It was always fighting. It was never people, and it, and also interesting, interestingly enough, was never people getting hurt. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't people dying either. So it was just conflict. It was like I remember a bunch of like bullets and the tracer bullets. You would see a lot of that kind of footage rockets being shot off but then i would go hang out over my homie my palestinian homie's house and he would turn on al jazeera right and then that was a completely different way that the media mm. was showing everything you know yeah. they would show everything they would show people dead in the streets they would also show people trying to live normal lives they would also yeah. interview people you know and i i think you're completely right you know and it's i think it's something that a lot of people are talking about lately how yeah. slanted the different media outlets are here mm. in the united states you know i mean obviously cnn and fox but there is a lot of stuff that we aren't shown in general i think yeah. it's super it's super detrimental man you know it's it's yeah. very it's just terrible you know yeah and i think it's you know unfortunately you know it's sort of i wouldn't say i would i don't mean to say it's like a conspiracy but like it's it's sort of like you know if you don't show these like humanizing images of like a certain part of the world you know you you, you get a population that's more just okay with like constant warfare happening in those regions because unless they have haven't been there or have relationships there or family there you know they just don't really care you know because that's all they see you know but if they saw more humanizing images they would 
they would be more angry about it and vote for the politicians who aren't trying to start wars and military presence anyway but yeah it's a and and how did they see when you were out there i'm sure the i mean i know when i went to cuba it seemed like a lot of the cubans that i met were eager to talk about american politics you know like when i went to argentina that was one of the first things that they always wanted to ask me about american politics when you went out there to these different regions out there in the middle east and north africa was that something that they wanted to talk to you about was that something that they were uh i mean informed of curious about or was it just you know like fuck them over there but how was it i mean in general yeah people were very yeah people wanted to talk about politics people wanted to you know hear my perspective on things or tell me their perspective on things i i think you know that one of the things i would say that was like different uh than say like maybe when we're in the u.s or americans kind of here talk about other parts of the world is like there it would always usually these conversations be paused by like okay we know there's a difference between american government and like american people you know especially in places like egypt where there's a lot of tourism people from all over the world go to egypt so usually you get a lot of times people like you get in a taxi you'd start talking with the taxi driver they would say well i've uh, you know i've given americans plenty of rides around cairo and nice people and we know there's a difference between the government and the people and, that's know, interesting man because i feel doesn't, doesn't always yeah i feel like we don't do that here go ahead sorry sorry i don't mean to yeah, interrupt I you but i feel like we don't do that you know it's like iranian yeah, yeah. people there's no disconnect it seems like mm-hmm yeah, I think for whatever reason, which is weird, because you think here we're like, well, this is like a free country with people from all, you know, we're a country of immigrants, you know, everybody's, unless you're Native American, you're not, you know, Native American, right? I mean, everybody's an immigrant, most people in this country are immigrants. Uh, so you'd think we would have this more like nuanced perspective, but for whatever reason, we don't. I don't, you know, I, I think a lot of people do. Uh, but in general, I think we tend to kind of like to pigeonhole people and places and things it's terrible yeah man and and you're saying out there you would start talking to people and they would for sure just be like okay cool there's a definite difference between you and whatever it is the people that you got in charge are doing and it was just something that was known for sure yeah i mean yeah some people would be be like you know i mean obviously like you, you would it's inevitable you get into heated discussions and people kind of assume things about you because of where you're from. I mean, that happens everywhere, right? I, but, you know, I ne- I also, I've never been one to like <laughs> get into like f- start fights with people and like, <laughs> mm-hmm. or like start heated arguments, you know, I, I just, I, I just like to kind of listen. And, you know, if somebody's talking shit about the US, it's like, I don't, you know, it's like, that's their opinion. It doesn't necessarily reflect me, you know, it's not like I, you know, I would be in discussions with them, but, you know, it's difficult to take sometimes these things personally, because it's like, you know, I feel the just same I'm, 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 I'm patriotic to a healthy degree. I'm not like, <laughs> well, it's, it's, also, you know, it's, it's funny, man. It's funny ahead. you say that because it's, you know, there is, like you just said, everything's supposed to be here, you know, freedom of speech and individuality and individual thought and mm-hmm. debate and discussion but there mm-hmm. are very much things that people can and cannot say right i mean they're unwritten and we don't like to say that you can and cannot say this i remember maybe this is even terrible to say but i remember as a kid being super confused about the pledge of allegiance i remember being mm-hmm. very even at a young age like what this is a little like culty you know like this is a little odd that every morning we're standing up and putting our hand over our hearts you know they're very like it's, it's odd to me. You know what I mean? Like there's certain things here. We have hangups here in the United States, you know, that I don't fully understand. And I'm, you know, I'm not some, I'm not the kind of person to sit here and talk about the United States as if it's the worst place in the world. I mean, I just don't believe yeah. that to be the case. You know, I think we have a lot of things here as United States citizens that we can enjoy that just, you know, they, they just aren't the case in other places. You know, like there's a lot of freedoms that we enjoy there's a lot of sacrifice that people have done. You know, I'm talking about the people in the military, you know, all these many, many different people in government that have worked to make sure that we have these rights. And there's, of course, a long history of the United States doing a lot of fucked up shit, you know? So yeah. it's it's not like, 
I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm the same as you. I can't look at the United States as like this pearly, you know, utopia because it just isn't. I mean, as someone who's studied, you know, Latin American history, I mean, we've overthrown governments, you know, like we've, yeah. I mean, look, I mean, talking about the Middle East, you know, we've been in, in there and well, everyone knows the lies, you know, supposedly, not supposedly, but very true lies that got us there in the first place. And there's a lot of, nothing is perfect. You know, and, yeah. and I'm not the kind of person to talk shit about the United States either. But also, I think there's something to be said about having a very nuanced, clear view of what this country has done in many parts of the world that have has benefited us. And we should be very cognizant of those ramifications, you know. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, I think it's just like being open to criticism, too. It's just like. If I mess up or. You know, we live in a country that's done a lot of messed up stuff. We should just be able to like accept that and talk about it. And you know, otherwise, it's like if you just keep trying to like say, "Oh, nothing's wrong," you know, it's never gonna. <laughs> no, we're perfect. You know, it's, that doesn't get anybody anywhere. No, no. And before, okay, so what is the most? It's gonna seem like a cheesy question, but I actually want I want you to answer this truthfully. What was the most beautiful memory you have of one of your first trips? out there first going out there was it like a memory that you think back and you're like wow this completely changed the way that i think about this region of the world or these people here or what it is that i'm experiencing now what is that one that one snapshot that one moment i would say it's it's difficult to think of a snapshot but i think when when i was in egypt i because i had my language classes and kind of regular school during the day at this language center um most of what this center does was teach English to uh, like students like our age, you know, undergraduate age students from Egypt, but then they had these individual programs kind of for foreigners that would come to Egypt to study Arabic. So I was at this like language institute in the mornings and then the evenings, a friend of mine actually met through this language institute. He, took, he was like, hey, if you're here, like you want to study the Oud and you want to get into like music and stuff, I got to take you to this place called Beit al Oud, which is like the air which means like the oud house basically it was in this cool old center of cairo this old part of cairo right next to like one of the oldest universities in the world this like university that was founded in like the middle ages um, yeah al azhar university so kind of this old area but it was also kind of a local area you know it wasn't like a rich area you know it's kind of where a lot of like working class people live. so it was just like kind of a cool area historic kind of mellow you know lots of good all kinds of food. Um, so there were, and then in one part of it, there was this kind of this old tourist shop, this old kind of like, or not a tourist shop, like a tourist area where it's just this old, like the old kind of market, you know, it's been around there for ages, you know. So it's a cool area. So I met this friend, he took, he took me there and was like, he introduced me to the people there and uh, introduced me to like the, the guy that runs it. It was this famous food player from Iraq, Nasir Shemma. Uh, he, he's the guy who runs the place. It was owned by the Egyptian government, but he was kind of like the manager of it, sort of like the director. So he was kind of the main professor, you could say there. But then there was a bunch of people that graduated from this place. It was like a three-year, about a three, four-year program there. Um, but, so you would, so there's like, I don't know, maybe like 15 kind of teachers under him that would give like half-hour lessons three times a week. So I would just say, to answer your question, like just going to this place, I think that was like a really, I mean, obviously musically it was amazing, but just didn't get to know all the people there. Cause it's obviously, you know, I'm in Cairo. So I'd meet people from all over Egypt, but I met people from Iraq, people from Syria. There's a few Europeans there. There was even like a few students from Indonesia there. Uh, I mean, just people from all over the Middle East and then, you know, a few other parts of the world too. like um yeah i had friends from libya uh yeah syria palestine um so i would say that and it was all just through music everybody came there because they wanted to learn oud or another instrument they taught a few other instruments there too um yeah it was just i think that was just a really nice experience um overall just kind of getting to know a lot of people and hear a lot of music learn a lot Hear a lot of perspectives. Um, yeah, I, it's hard to it's hard to like single out one moment though. Uh, well, and that, I mean, if I can 
if I can transition into your research just a little bit, I don't want to give too much away. But mm-hmm. I do know that you followed the movement of the oud, right? So a lot of what you've studied has had to do with this oud, this instrument, moving over, I mean, an enormous region, right? I mean, because Islam, we can say that that music has gone from where? Saudi Arabia into the Middle East, but also as far west as like North Africa and Morocco. And when I was lecturing on this not too long ago, I mean, I also know that there's like, there's mosques, like even in China, you know what I mean? So like the religion has moved stuff all over that, yeah. I mean, the continents, right? And I mean, I don't know if, I, I don't want to talk out of turn, right? This isn't my specialty. No. But has has the Oud moved along with the religion in that same way? Or I mean, it, it's not just to one region, right? I feel like I'm butchering this. <laughs> talk about no, what no, you I, talk about what your research gave. It's a good question. I mean, I think that there's so many theories. I mean, we've I, you and I we've talked about this over the years. You know, there's just so many theories about like, no matter what instrument, what tradition it is. I mean, there's so many theories about origins and debates and is this the original or who are the like the authentic practitioners of this and what's this? You know, I mean, these discussions are just like endless and there's rarely any answers you know uh but i think you know but having said that you know i think that oud yeah i think in certain instances it you know it did spread to the middle east from like other to other parts of the world kind of because of religion um but i but you know and again i'll just i think you know a, a lot of scholars say that you know the first instrument that kind of looked like an oud kind of came about in iran or Persia, I guess they would call it back then. Um, I think in like the fourth century, something like this, like before Islam, uh, in like one of the centuries coming up before Islam, because Islam was like seventh century, so fourth century. Um, Out of Iran. But I think actually, I mean, and this is just kind of my opinion, I haven't done any like research, but when you go around and talk to a lot of oud makers, you know, nobody's talking about, well, 6,000 years ago or 200 years ago this is like that people are usually like well no i learned this from like a family friend or like from like an institute or from a family member from my grandfather you know and like and he learned you know the history is like very recent you know usually people kind of pinpoint like certain makers back in this 19th century kind of like guitar like you had all those guitar makers in spain in the 19th century that kind of what we know is today is guitars like that was this group of guys you know and in Spain, but probably maybe elsewhere too, that like set the standard, you know? Same thing with Oud, there was a few, there's some guys in like Damascus and Istanbul, you know, and other places that kind of set the standard for what we know today. So so these kind of, you know, all these debates about, oh, what happened like hundreds and thousands of years ago? It's like, dude, you're forgetting the people that, <laughs> you know, just were, you know, just around like 80 years ago or you're still around today and stuff like that. Um, but I think an interesting case, but it's an interesting question because something I've only kind of realized recently in talking to our, our buddy Albert Aboud, he did a lot, he did his, he's another colleague of ours, he did, a friend of ours, he did work in Indonesia. So Albert's from, his family's from Syria, but he, he grew up in Boston, he grew up in Abu Dhabi, he kind of grew up all over the place, but spent most of his life, I think, in Boston area. Um, so he went to, he did his research in Indonesia to kind of look at like arabic music in indonesia and talking with him he was saying a lot of the arabic music that's in indonesia and they play oud play other arabic instruments play a lot i mean there's so much music in indonesia it's, um but the arabic styles there he you know he was kind of saying that a lot of that kind of came with islam and or it was because of islam you know people wanted to kind of have this connection to you know the middle east and kind of with islamic culture so music was a part of that but it's interesting because he said they'll play like songs by there's this famous uh, Lebanese singer. Her name's Fairuz. She's like one of the most famous singers like in the Arab world. She's still alive today. But in Indonesia, they'll play Fairuz songs because it's kind of in this like Islamic Middle Eastern context. But Fairuz, she's Christian. Like she's oh, she's interesting. Like Mar- Mar- she's Marianite Christian, you know. And so it's like she's not like. She comes out with like Christmas albums and stuff like that. She's not like, you know, so it's like, but I think there it's because the sound sounds Middle Eastern. So that yeah. kind of just equals, um, and I think it's cool. You know, I think that's, you know, people, that's the beauty of music is people can have, take, have their own take, you know, anywhere where music moves. Um, 
And if we're talking about Middle Eastern music, I would have to say the oud is probably the most Middle Eastern sounding instrument. I think that I would, I could probably pick out from the top of my head right now. It's such a beautiful sound, you know, and it's, it makes total sense why that instrument would move into Indonesian, Indo, into Indonesian that way. Yeah. Cause it has such a beautiful, I mean, there's no frets, first of all, mm-hmm. right? So people who play guitar, imagine a guitar. I mean, everyone's seen a guitar. If you look at a guitar, it has these metal things where you put your fingers, right? Those are called frets. Those essentially allow you to play the notes. Imagine a guitar with no notes, or sorry, yeah, no notes, no frets. That's essentially the fingerboard for nude, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. then, and then, how do the strings work? Uh, the strings are tuned in fourths, pretty similar to a guitar. There's there's lots of different tunings. I like to, you know, depending on like the style you want to play, or or you know, like what kind of so people kind of call sort of like back in the day in Europe, you know, they'd be like the Russian school, the the Bohemian school, like Czechoslovakia. I mean, I this isn't my expertise, so but you know, what I'm saying that it was like kind of like these schools that were set up in the 19th century. And they're usually based on like the country, you know. So they've, they've kind of that similar thing has happened in the in like the Middle East, you know. Okay, so people say, oh, there's the Turkish school, and there's the Iraqi school, and there's the Egyptian school. And um, I mean, I think I think there's some truth to that, you know. Obviously, borders, you know restrict people's movements and they make people stay in one place and develop a thing there but also people move a lot too so i think while there's some truth to these different schools you know it's people have been moving around and so you know and even if you would just want to say oh you know like a lot of people in egypt or a lot of my friends would say oh there's a turkish school but then you talk to like when you're and he's like well there's like a million styles of and approaches to the oud and <laughs> just it just in turkey alone so Shout out um, to Dr. Beckin at UCLA, yeah. an amazing oudist, amazing mm-hmm. musician. He's uh, we gotta, I gotta find some videos of him. So why don't we show the people a little bit of a, what you do, right? We have a video here, so why don't we, why don't we show you off a little bit? Do you know? I mean, when I was listening to this earlier, it sounded kind of like majory. What was, what's the background with this video we're about to see? Is it the one I sent you on? Just yeah, the one you just sent me, yeah. Yeah, so actually the oud, so shout out to Vikin Najarian. He's a, a amazing oud maker uh, in Orange County or in Anaheim area. Uh, I bought that, the oud I'm playing this video, I bought from him a couple years ago. Spent a big chunk of my savings uh, to get this oud. Worth it, uh, worth it. Yeah, yeah. So it, he calls it, um, so Vikin uh, learned oud making from his grandfather who was, who, so they were an who was an Arme- from an Armenian family, but they lived in Lebanon in Beirut. And actually, so Vikin's grandfather knew Rossi, our professor AJ Rossi. Shout out to him. Uh, when he was a kid, like so, Rossi would go into his Vikin's like grandfather's oud shop in Le- in Beirut, like Lebanon back in the day, and, like try ouds when he was like a, before he moved to the U.S. You know, way back in the '60s or '70s. Wow. So yeah, it was kind of an interesting connection there with UCLA and Vikin. And I think Vikin went to UCLA too. I think he studied ethnomusicology like us. Um, so anyway, this oud is, it has this, he calls it kind of like an Armenian or Turkish style. Uh, like the size is a little smaller. It's a little easier to grip. And I'm, I'm no oud maker, but the sound, so the sound of it, there's a certain buzz that uh, Turkish ouds or, you know, or Armenian ouds have that kind of have this buzz that make you kind of, play a little bit more staccato-y and a little bit more short but you I mean you can all still hold notes but you know kind of hold these more legato notes but it's just different than like say a, a Syrian or Arabic style oud that has a much more kind of like smooth tone I guess you could say and I'm not like don't mean that like at a value like it's smoother than it's better but it's just it has a little bit more less buzz kind of to it so whenever so- I play this oud that buzzing kind of forces me to do certain uh like certain, I don't know, ornaments that to me like sound a little bit more like Turkish or Anatolian or because just the way the instrument is built, you know, if I tried to play something like very like Egyptian sounding or serious, it would, it would sound, I mean, to me, it would, it just wouldn't have that right sound. So when I'm playing this kind of major scale, it's, yeah, it's basically like a major scale, um, and since I go into UCLA, like I've learned from Mohsin Mohammadi, shout out to Mohsin, you know, he's, he taught us about like the Iranian dasga, like, like so the Iranian modes and 
he took a whole class where he would just take us through these like different modes uh, that are like in Iranian classical music. And then I played with shout out to Armin Adamian. We, you know, we had a group together. We actually took this class from Bosa. And so, you know, Armin would teach me kind of some of these uh, sort of traditional Armenian songs. So I feel like when I'm playing now, when I, especially when I'm improvising like this video, it's just sort of, I'm kind of just digesting stuff I've learned from different people. Um, so when I play this major scale, it's just kind of like, I, I don't want to, I just, I'll just call it a major scale because I can't say it's like a specific mode from this specific tradition or that. I'll just say it's kind of a major scale with a few modulations. And for anyone who isn't a, a music music major, right, or someone who studied music, so we're talking about scales and modes. Essentially, they're just combination of, of what we would call pitches or, or notes, right? So like if someone's singing... Yeah. La da 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 da. All that—that's a scale. That's just a set of pitches, right? So, in the cool thing with this type of music and something that makes it sound very Middle Easterny is there are notes. So, if you look at a piano, there's white keys and black keys. There's notes in between the white keys and the black keys that musicians mm -hmm. use in Middle Eastern music. And uh, what Gabe is really good at, and what what he was talking about in terms of modes and all this, is these different modes, these different sets of pitches. They have these notes in them that are in between the white and the black keys in the piano. And these give these sets of pitches, which generally we can call a mode, that allows us to have these very beautiful little like mini melodies that the musicians or the singers or whoever can kind of like explore. And Gabe, let me know if I'm saying anything wrong, but they can kind of explore and basically make little mini compositions within them. Uh, and it's it's a gorgeous sound. It's a beautiful, beautiful sound. And what Gabe is talking about right now is he's sticking more to like what we in the West would understand is like a major scale. What I just sang, um, but yeah. we get to hear it on a oud. Gabe, what? Let me know. What did I say? Is oh, anything out of? Uh, that's out that's of great to me. I I think I think what's 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 cool about you know again like I said earlier, it's just there's no one right way to interpret things. I mean, obviously, if you want to dig into one tradition you have to kind of like adopt a method but even then there's so many especially with the oud i mean you're talking i mean you're talking about an instrument that's you know played mostly in the middle east but it's also in indonesia it's in you know it's in east africa it's wow you know even just the middle east it's that's just like a huge area i mean that's tons of different cultures so i think you know there's a lot of ways to like think about and conceptualize things so and it's, I kind of gave my like rant, you know, so it's good to have somebody to kind of try to clarify things. <laughs> <laughs> I tried, I tried, I tried. Yeah. Okay, so let's listen, let's listen, because you're an amazing Buddhist, and I want to share this with people so they can understand what this sounds like. So let's Thanks, cut man. over, let's cut over to that.
what was what was the what was the maker's name again? Does he have a shop yeah. or something? Yeah, yeah. So he's down in the Anaheim area, Orange County area, uh, Vic and Nigerian. Um, are, you, are you able to put just like a little like? Yeah, I can put... able to put like a little. Cool. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I th- he's definitely got a, he's got a website and everything. Um, you know, he's a super accessible guy. I mean, he's just be- you know really awesome person and just really knows his craft and makes beautiful instruments. So, and he's and he's happy to like. You know, if he's not too busy, if you contact him ahead of time, he's happy to have people kind of stop by the shop and check things out. Yeah, they don't pull the they don't pull the guitar center on them, do they? With like <laughs> seventeen people in there all playing the same well, thing actually, at once. Actually, it's interesting. Um, he so he makes he claims to be like the inventor of the electric oud, and which it is true because he, in the sense that he is like made the electric oud that's like on the global market now he's the one who makes them damn and his biggest market is actually back in like countries like uh kuwait you know countries like in the, in the gulf region kuwait bahrain saudi arabia oman uh so that he says that that's the market that you know really gives him a lot of business uh making electric ouds uh, and they sound really great i mean do they though? Do they? Because sometimes, man, I'll I mean, hear I'll hear an electric I mean, guitar and it sounds ter- not an electric guitar. I'll hear an acoustic guitar with an internal pickup, essentially an electric guitar, but it's an acoustic guitar. It doesn't sound mm-hmm. good, man. It doesn't. Yeah, I mean, it's you. You it, it never. It's never going to be a replacement for that acoustic sound, especially for the oud. Even I mean, I was talking to him, and he and I've talked to other oud makers too, and they, you know, I hear most so many people say, so many makers say, like even if you make the exact same food like same dimensions same wood same they both will sound different you mm-hmm. know like the you know the, i mean i think some places you know you can get like these factory made oods but even then you know people just say it's just the way the instrument design is you know the different parts it's just it's it's hard to like get have one oud and then reproduce that sound and then let alone reproduce that sound electrically which is just you know that big kind of pear-shaped body and that just that big warm kind of loud but deep it's kind of soft sound it's like um you know you just can't reproduce electrically but if but if you have to you know so these places his electric is popular for like people that are playing like in like big concerts you know big concert halls or playing with like a really loud band with like a bunch of percussion players i mean you have to you have to get electrified so it's it's the best thing out there if you have to go that route nice and you know the oud is it's what i've always appreciated about the oud is it it seems like i mean i don't know if it is it must be but the woodworking on the ouds are Mm. so gorgeous all the time man like they're they have all these inlays even like in the sound hole what i would say the sound hole is yeah and it just gets more and more elaborate and they look like they look like pieces of art you can hang them on the wall not even play them and then you hear someone play them and it i mean it sounds gorgeous there's such a range you know like even when you were playing right now you would play higher notes, which mm. usually if you're playing a guitar or an oud, you go up the fretboard and they just cut so beautifully, you know, and then you still hit the lower notes, go yeah. away from the body. And the sound, like you said, it sounds so warm. It's a really woody, you know yeah. what I mean? It's it's a gorgeous sound. Yeah, it's similar. I mean, somewhat similar range. Maybe it can it goes a little higher because you have like these, you know, you have six strings, so you have higher strings, but it has like a similar... I mean, I would just personally say it has a similar kind of range and sort of feeling as the cello kind of, as if, in terms oh. of tone. Like it can go, it can go higher, I think, right? Because you have these, high, you know, cello is four strings and they're mostly lower strings. But I would put it kind of in. I mean, if, if you're getting into upper octaves, oud kind of goes a little higher, but it's kind of occupies a similar range and kind of uh, timbre as the cello. I, I mean, that's just my. I don't I've never played cello I don't even like really listen to much classical music but I do love the cello and I kind of you know and a lot of people say that too because actually a lot of modern oud technique comes from cello technique um Hmm. yeah there was a it's actually a guy I've been trying to look into more and research more because he actually lived in the United States in the 1920s this guy's name is his name is Sharif Mohideen Haider Uh, he's kind of considered one like the founders of like modern oud playing uh he studied classical cello he, he was from istanbul you know which was when he was born it was a part of the ottoman empire so he grew up there but you know he was a part of kind of like an aristocratic family so he 
grew up kind of studying the arts and playing kind of Turkish music and uh, classical music. He studied, and he actually studied, because I found the newspaper interviews with him from the American press when he lived here. And he said that he studied with a student of David Popper. Hmm. So I'm sure, you know, it's a name I didn't know until I started looking into this because I don't know classical, Western classical music as much. But David Popper is like the big name for cello. I mean, this guy in the 19th century, this guy was from Prague, you know, he laid a lot of the foundations for modern cello playing. So this dude who laid the foundations for modern oud playing studied with a student of David Popper. So it's this very, it's a, it's interesting history. Yeah. That is and super so interesting. Apply, he would pl apply the cello left-hand technique, the fingerboard to the oud, you know, so, you know, it's like cello, you're, vertical like this, but then oud, you know, horizontal, but the same kind of technique, so. Wow, I did not yeah. know that. I didn't know that. But you know what, it makes sense though, because the the cello fretboard, the cello, the cello neck is pretty thick and the oud is pretty wide, isn't it? Or, or am I tripping? Am I tripping yeah, it's 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 comparable. I think the oud, I mean, again, I, I, I'm not as familiar with the cello, but it's comparable. I think the cello would probably be a little bit more to kind of grip, you know, but I think it's comparable, you know, the oud is, is it's, and, and then it being fretless, you know, it's, you know, comparable dimensions, but then it's also a fretless instrument. So that technique can really be translatable from the, between the two instruments. And how long does it take you to learn those notes, man? Cause not having the frets is crazy. I play guitar and guitar is already hard enough because you have to know where to put your finger in between yeah. each one of the frets. Right. But when you don't have them, like how, how do you, how long does that, I mean, I guess we could, talk to like upright bass players and ask the same question. I mean, right? it, I, I feel like for me it took, yeah. And I think it's same with like, you know, class, you know, violin players, cello players, you know, all the fretless instruments. But I mean, for me, I mean, it was definitely like around a year, you know, and definitely a few years till I was you know, kind of more, was able to be more precise. And when you were at this Oud Institute in the Middle East, where was it again? I don't want to. Keep it was saying, in Cairo, in Egypt. Yeah. In, whew, in Cairo. Okay. When you were out yeah. there in Cairo, learning from these masters, what was the what was the pedagogy? What was the way that you learned it? Was it was just you just sat down with the master and he was like, "Check this out, play this," or was it yeah, theory actually, reading, or how, how did it, was, it work? It was a mix, um, and it was a pretty cool place because it wasn't like this music conservatory. You must show up, but uh, you know, a lot, most of the people going there, you know, had day jobs or school during the day, so it was kind of a place like people came to learn but it was also like a social gathering place you come to meet people and people come you know and so I mean, that that was awesome so you know it was very you can learn i mean i i obviously learned a lot and but you know but pe people also just went there just to hang out you know because it's like a good it's just a great place to hang out and meet a lot of cool people um but the basically the system they had there was like uh it's like three days a week you'd meet with, and this was all subsidized uh, by the Egyptian government. So I, I remember paying like 200 Egyptian pounds at the time for, for a month. And I could go there four days a week and get three days a week, get a lesson with, they assign you with like a, a graduate, somebody graduated from their program. And then they kind of, you get like a 20 minute to a half hour lesson. Sometimes they pair you up with somebody. A lot of the times you just, just one-on-one, -on -one, but it's great, you know? So that's three days a week. And then the fourth, day of the week you could do they did like sight reading so just like western music notation you'd be sight reading these different things a lot of it yeah it, a lot of it too was some of it was like built for the arabic scales arab scales in arabic music maham but then some of it they would just straight up pull from like the russian <laughs> school handbook be like all right play this like really let's try to work through this really difficult sight reading stuff in like the major scale or minor scale or and it was yeah, so that, but that was also fun too. You meet all kinds of cool people. And you kind of just hang out for, you know, a couple hours just trying to sight read stuff. And, um, so that was kind of their, their system. And there's like certain compositions you have to learn to kind of that show you're at a certain level. You know, there's like beginner compositions, intermediate compositions, advanced compositions. And if you get kind of through all those, that repertoire, then you kind of do your like, graduation i never graduated because i wasn't there long enough but but i would attend some of these graduation concerts so you kind of have the student would give their concert you know like half hour 40 minutes and then kind of get their diploma um and actually i should say that guy i was talking about sharif mohideen who 
was active in the early 20th century and even was in the New York. He lived in New York for a little while. The guy who applied cello technique to Oud. So the guy I was learning from is kind of like, so this guy after he, Sharif Mohideen, after he lived in the US during the 1920s, he moved shortly after he moved to Baghdad in Iraq because his, his, he had like distant family members that were the royal family in Iraq by that time. So they invited him to come help open up a music conservatory in Baghdad. So he goes back there and teaches kind of like the first generation of like what people call like, you know, the modern Iraqi like school of Oud, you know. And so the guy who ran the music school I was going to in Egypt, he's from Baghdad and he's kind of like the second or third generation from this guy. So what's what's next looking forward, man? Looking forward, to, we're both coming up on the, the end to this PhD that we're working on. Um, COVID, I know, has fucked up all the plans that I had in place for the dissertation. I don't know how they've affected your research, but what's it looking like in the future? What what do you have working? What do you have cooking right now? Where can people follow you? Where can people get in contact with you if they want to collaborate with you musically or otherwise? What's uh what's coming up for Gabe Lavin, aka Bingus? Well, I mean, I've got my Instagram. I haven't been active, you know. I mean, in general, I just like everybody, haven't really been that active with anything this year just because of the crisis and everything but I, I have my instagram account that's kind of like my main you know my main sort of platform i use uh, i'm gonna try to start using youtube a little more but it's instagram is kind of my main thing so yeah people can contact me there um what's the handle but yeah but, but just kind of doing my just trying to finish up my dissertation research so i i do mostly historical kind of research on history of like recording and radio uh in the Persian Gulf region, because I, before I met you the year I, I was in Oman and lived in Kuwait for a little bit. So that's kind of, and also I had my friends from Kuwait and I went to undergrad with. So that's the reason I'm kind of, kind of maintaining that interest in this, that area. So I have to tr do some traveling sometime in the next year. We'll see what this happens with this vaccine, but I have to make a trip to London and a trip to Leiden in the Netherlands, because they've got some old like sound archives that I'm going to be looking at. Um, do you write Leiden? I'm gonna... Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, man. There's this this terrible lag. I was just gonna ask. Do no, you do you write anything and post it online? Where can people read some of the stuff that you're working on? You know, in some of your uh, some of your research. I I still actually I don't have anything published yet. Um, I I have a couple things in the Ethnomusicology Review. Actually, one thing in the Ethnomusicology Review, and then I have my Academia.edu. Uh, page but that's the one thing i have on there it's, it was actually an art it's an article that i wrote that was translated into arabic um so it's that's up there but i, I think so the ethnomusicology review um i've got an article there and then oudmigrations.com i have an article there about actually so this i attended a oud festival in sudan uh i attended it twice actually once in 2014 and then another time in 2017 um so I wrote an article about that Oud festival there. I got linked to this because at the Oud school I studied at in Egypt, there was a few Sudanese teachers. Uh, so I kind of became friends with them. And then they got involved with organizing this Oud festival back in Sudan. Uh, they're like, well, we need like a European, <laughs> you know, American guy. We need like our token white guy to come play the Oud. So we know Gabe. <laughs> Gabe was cool. Like, let's, let's, Gabe was cool. So let's get Gabe. He was a good Oud player. And, you know. Yeah, you so, are. Um, so yeah, I went there and so I wrote an article about that actually. So yeah, it's, it's you know, kind of talking about how Sudan, it's an Arab country, but it's also an African country too, you know, and that's kind of an issue that's at the center of a lot of, you know, politics and kind of issues happening there right now. And um, and again, kind of talking about the Oud again, you know, the Oud is like a very, it's so many different cultures play the Oud, um, you know, so it's just interesting in Sudan, it's kind of, you know, sort of, it's an Arab instrument, but it could also be considered an African instrument too, you know? There's even people that are trying to start us, you know, saying there's a Sudanese school of oud playing. And it's, when they say what it defines it is um, in the pentatonic scale. So pentatonism, uh, so kind of similar to sort of like Arabic moods, you kind of have these, every step of like a kind of a, a scale, you can turn into a different mode. I mean, it's similar to modal theory and 
Western music in certain senses. So people, I know theorists, Sudanese theorists that are kind of saying there's the same thing, but with pentatonic modes happening mm. in Sudan. So, so they, what some theorists, Sudanese theorists are saying is that, well, it's pentatonism, pentatonicism that uh, kind of defines Sudanese playing. Wow. So send me, uh, send me so, the links to these and I'll put them in the show notes so people can check them out. This yeah, is fascinating. Yeah, I will. I will. Yeah. Yeah, I will. Definitely. What's one thing that you would like to leave people with about the Middle East and all your travels in the Middle East and travels in North Africa and all these different <laughs> places and all your different research? What's one thing that you would leave people with uh, with respect to, to everything that you've learned in all your travels? Yeah, that's that's a that's a it's a lot to say. I mean, I I think just kind of what I think what I feel like I've been one theme I keep going back to at least to today what we've talking today is just you know like just don't pigeonhole people. <laughs> Simple as that, I guess. You know, just every every single city on the earth, every single town on the earth has a lot going on, even if it's just like a small place or even it's on the other side of the world. It's just it's you know life is complicated and crazy and weird and difficult and but also beautiful and you know and everybody kind of goes through that everywhere in the world so it's just like don't you know don't you know don't pigeonhole people <laughs> that's a great place to leave it and that's very true <laughs> let's leave it there thank you so much gabe this was great bingus thank you so much bingus thank you this was great and let's uh let's do another one soon let's do it yeah let's do it for sure <laughs>